Thank you for joining us today. At ResLife, our mission is to develop committed followers of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Our content is created to equip and empower you in God's purpose. We hope you enjoy this message. Amen. You may be seated. Well, thank you so much. Denise and I are always so glad to be here, first of all, because we get to be with Pastor Dwayne and Jeannie. You know, it's very unusual for one church to have a pastor that long. And Pastor Dwayne, it's such to your credit. Thank you for your tenacity. Really, thank you. And I told the earlier service that the reason that we live in Moscow today is because of Pastor Dwayne. Back when this church was called the People's Church, and you were in another building, I came here. And actually, it was my first time to come here. And I was back in Pastor Dwayne's office before the service, and he was on the phone with a fellow minister that I knew. And the two of them together decided that I needed to join them on a trip to the Soviet Union. They didn't consult me, but between them, they made that decision. And I said, you know, Pastor Dwayne, I'm not interested in missions. I don't even like missionaries. And I said, I'm really not interested in going to the Soviet Union. Plus, I do a lot of teaching from the Greek. I don't know how my gift would work overseas. I think I'll just stay in Tulsa. And he said, that's fine. We'll go by ourselves. You just stay in Tulsa in your beautiful house near the golf course while the world goes to hell. But we'll go to the ends of the earth. And by the time that he was finished, I felt so guilted that I found myself saying, yes, I will join you on your trip to the Soviet Union. And the day that I got on that plane, I was not a happy man. I thought, I've just met Dwayne Vanderclough. Now I'm with John Varekin, whom I've never met in my life. What a great guy John Varekin is. Dave Duell was there. We were on that flight. And I would say, Lord, what am I doing on this plane going to the Soviet Union? And then when I stood up and spoke in that above-ground Bible school, the first above-ground Bible school since the Bolshevik Revolution, when I opened my Bible, that's when the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, welcome to your new home. It just totally disarmed me. That's when I was called to what at that time was the Soviet Union, and now we have lived there 30 years. Is that amazing? And you know, I want to tell you, I had concerns that my kids would grow up without their relatives, without the conveniences of the United States. They wouldn't know American sports. They wouldn't know what it would be like to go to the American movie theater. They would be gone from all of that. But you know what? My sons have grown up with a worldview. They have learned to speak multiple languages, the experience that my sons have received. You know, Jesus said, if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake you'll find it. And when you obey the Lord, you never lose. You always find life. It was like we left a black and white world and we entered into a full spectrum color world. Our life has been wonderful. And Pastor Dwayne, thank you for conning me into that first trip. (laughs) Changed my life. Thank you so much. I'll forever be grateful to you. But it's a privilege to speak to you today. And I want you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Are you ready? Romans chapter 8, and today I'm going to talk to you about the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, this is a message that I used to regularly preach, haven't really preached it in years, but today I feel led to go here. So we're going to go to Romans chapter 8 in verse 26, and Father, we thank you for this time of the Word of God. 
Holy Spirit, today we look to you as the great master teacher. You are the one that authored this book. You know that I mean it when I say that you're the only one really authorized to teach it. And today we surrender our minds to you, our ears, our mouths. We ask you to speak through us and to speak to us. Give us ears to hear, to really hear and to comprehend what you're saying to us. Take us into the Scripture. Take us into the Scripture today and change us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. I'm reading from the King James Version. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself... That's what the King James Version says. However, the Greek uses the word autos. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a him. A better translation would be the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And in this verse, the Apostle Paul begins to describe what I call the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit. And today, if you have a physical Bible, I want you to take your pen or your pencil and get ready to underline in several circles several things in this verse. The very first of the verse says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth. Either underline or circle the word help. The Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Then if you would either underline or circle that word infirmities. For we know not what. I would even circle the word what. You'll see why in just a moment. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought underline that word, ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us. Underline that word, intercession. And notice who's doing the intercession in this verse. It's not us doing the work of intercession. It's the Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. But today I want us to begin with the word infirmities. When you come to Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, And the Apostle Paul writes, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. This word infirmities in the Greek text is the word asthenios, asthenios. The word asthenios, here translated infirmities, is what I would call a generic word for sickness, or it is a term which embraces every kind of sickness and disease. In English, it would be the equivalent of the word sick. For example, if a person has a headache, you can say they are sick. But if a person has cancer, you can also say they are sick. That word sick is a generic term which embraces all kinds of sicknesses and diseases. Well, when you come to Romans 8 verse 26, the word infirmities is like the word sick. It embraces every kind of sickness and disease. But when you study the four gospels, you find that Jesus primarily healed five categories of sickness. Five categories of sickness. Because this word infirmities is the Greek word asthenios, which is a generic term which embraces all sicknesses and diseases, it means all five of the sicknesses and diseases that I'm about to describe to you fit up inside this word infirmities, just as if I were to slip my hand up inside a glove. All five of these terms are inside this word infirmities. And when you study the four Gospels, you find that Jesus healed five categories of sickness and disease. 
The first category of sickness which Jesus healed, it's translated as the word disease in Matthew chapter 4, is the word nosos. This word nosos, spelled N-O-S-O-S, is a term which describes those who have a terminal affliction for which there is no natural cure. If you have this particular category of sickness, you will not live unless you receive a miracle. The good news is Jesus performed those miracles, and they lived, and Jesus is still performing those miracles today. But that word nosos, very importantly, describes a terminal condition or a terminal case for which there is no natural cure. The second category of sickness which Jesus healed is also translated, believe it or not, as the word disease also in Matthew chapter 4, but it is a totally different word. It is the word melakion. They don't even sound the same. One is nosos. The next is the word melakion. The word melakion, if you're taking notes, it's spelled M-A-L-A-K-I-A-N. The word melakion describes a crippling or a debilitating disease. If you have this disease, you can live, but you can't walk normally. You're crippled. You're debilitated. You can't normally function. So I would call this a debilitating or a crippling disease. Jesus healed that category of sickness, and Jesus is still healing that category of sickness today. Then there was the third category of sickness which Jesus healed, the Greek word kakos, K-A-K-O-S. This word is primarily translated in the Gospels to describe those that were grievously vexed with demon spirits. Grievously vexed is the word kakos. It describes those that are mentally tormented or those that are mentally confused. Mentally confused. Jesus healed them. Jesus is still healing them today. So first of all, he healed nosos, a terminal condition, for which there is no natural cure. Second, he healed malachian, a crippling or debilitating disease. Number three, he healed kakos, those that were tormented mentally or who were mentally confused. And number four, he healed a category of sickness, which in Greek is the Greek word mastigos, M-A-S-T-I-G-O-S. That word mastigos is translated as the word plague. And this is very insightful to what is a plague. For example, we find this word in Mark chapter 5 where the Bible describes the woman who had an issue of blood, and the Bible says she had an issue of blood for 12 years. And when she touched Jesus, virtue flowed out of Jesus into her, and the Bible says she was healed of that plague. The Greek says she was healed of that mastigos. That word mastigos was first a word of torture. And it described a person who was brought from his cell, from his imprisonment. He was tied to a post. And the Roman torturers would come and they would begin to flog that individual, beating him and beating him, striking him and striking him, bringing him right to the point of death. Then they would stop, send him back to his cell. When he had recovered and his wounds had healed, then they would bring him out of the cell back to the beating post where again they would flog him and strike him and strike him and strike him and strike him, bring him right to the point of death, then stop, send him back to his cell, wait for him to mend, bring him back, and they would beat him and beat him and beat him and beat him. And this act of perpetual torture was called mastigas. And in the New Testament, this is translated as the word plague. And this tells us what a plague is. 
A plague is any sickness or disease that repetitiously strikes you and strikes you and strikes you and strikes you. It's not enough to kill you. It's just enough to keep your life continually torn up. It may be high blood pressure. That's a plague. It keeps striking and striking. In fact, you may think it's gone and then it strikes you again. Or maybe migraine headaches or allergies or a foot fungus. These technically are what plagues are. In the case of the woman with the issue of blood, she had had it for how many years? 12 years. She wasn't dead. It was a sickness that just kept beating her and beating her and striking her and striking her. But Jesus healed her. Then you come to the fifth category of sickness, which Jesus healed. This is the Greek word aristos, A-R-R-O-U-S-T-O-S. The word aristos describes those that are so frail, they're homebound, they're bedfast, and in fact, they are comatose. They have lost consciousness altogether. They are aristos, or these are the individuals that are comatose. What is so amazing about this is that is the very word which Jesus uses in Mark chapter 16 when he describes the authority given to us. And Jesus says, believers will lay hands on the sick and the sick shall recover. The Greek literally says, you will lay hands on the aristos, on the comatose, and even the comatose will recover. Jesus was demonstrating how great is the authority that has been given us. When we pray for the comatose, even they respond. And Pastor Dwayne, something really interesting. When the Bible says Jesus went to Nazareth and there he could do no mighty work, save he healed a few sick folks, when you read that, it sounds like Jesus did some minor things, save he just healed a few little sick folks. But the reason Jesus couldn't do any mighty work in Nazareth was because of their unbelief. That's what the Bible says. And because Jesus couldn't find anybody awake who would cooperate with him, he turned to another category, save he healed a few sick folks. That's the word aristos. Jesus turned to the comatose. He couldn't find any intelligent, wide-awake people who would release their faith to cooperate with him. So Jesus said, fine, I'll take the comatose, and I'll just work with them. These were mighty, mighty miracles. Now, the reason I went through all five of these words is because logically all five of them fit inside the word infirmities in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. So inside that word infirmities is the word nosos, a terminal condition for which there is no natural cure. Inside that word infirmities is the word malachion, a debilitating or crippling disease. Inside that word infirmities is the word kakos, those that are mentally tormented or mentally confused, inside that word infirmities is the word mastigas, a sickness which strikes and strikes and strikes and strikes. And last of all, inside that word infirmities is the word aristos, those that have become comatose. But the problem is when you come to Romans 8 verse 26, that verse is not about physical ailments. It is about spiritual weaknesses. Well, when you pull all of this together, a powerful statement is being made in this verse. This verse is literally saying, likewise, the Spirit also helps our what? Infirmities, which means if we don't have the help of the Holy Spirit, if we don't have his help, we are all a terminal case. 
If we don't have the help of the Holy Spirit, spiritually we are debilitated, we are cripples. If we don't have the help of the Holy Spirit assisting us, we are spiritually confused. If we don't have the help of the Holy Spirit, our problems will just keep striking us and striking us and striking us again and again. And last of all, if we don't have the help of the Holy Spirit, we are aristos. We are nearly spiritual comatose. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to do. We don't even hardly know where we are if we don't have the help of the Holy Spirit. But this verse says, likewise, the Spirit what does what? Helps. Helps what? Our infirmities. Which means our infirmities do not eliminate us. Our infirmities qualify us for the help that is described in this verse. The Spirit comes to help us because we need help. He helps us because of our infirmities, because we are spiritually in this condition. I remember when I was a young man. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Tulsa, Oklahoma was the home place of many wonderful ministries, Oral Roberts University and Oral Roberts Ministries and Kenneth Hagin and T.L. Osborne, and because of all these notable characters who were in Tulsa, many great famous preachers came through, including Catherine Kuhlman. And as a young man, I attended all of those services. I remember the first time I ever attended a Catherine Kuhlman service. I attended many. I sat in my seat. And when Catherine Kuhlman came on the stage, how many of you have heard of Catherine Kuhlman? How many of you remember her? When she stepped on the stage, it was like a whirlwind of power passed into that auditorium. That's when I realized I had been taught bad doctrine in my church. I'd been taught that the age of miracles had ceased. But in that Catherine Kuhlman miracle service, I saw people getting off of stretchers, even pulling IVs out of their arms, blind eyes opening. And the Jesus of the Bible literally stepped into the room in front of me and it transformed my life. At the age of 14, myself having a very serious kidney condition, I attended a service in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I went forward in the prayer line. Brother Hagen laid hands on me. I fell under the power of God. And I remember laying on the floor, feeling the power of God literally going up and down from my top to my feet, back and forth, back and forth. And when I got off of the ground, that kidney condition was gone. It has never returned. That was in 1974. <laughs> then at the age of 14, I began to attend a class at Oral Roberts University every Tuesday night called the Holy Spirit in the Now. It was taught by Oral Roberts himself. And I always got there early so I could sit on the very front row. I could nearly reach out and touch Brother Roberts. And I would senator him and listen to him as he would teach on the miracle of seed faith and how miracles work. It was amazing what I was receiving. And I said to the Lord, Lord, I know that I'm called into the ministry. And you're not a respecter of persons. If you'll do this for Kenneth Hagin, if you'll do this for Catherine Kuhlman, if you'll do this for Oral Roberts, you'll do it for me. I want to be used mightily. And as a young man, I begin to think, if I was God, who would I give my power to? And I said, if I was God, I would give my power to somebody who really loved the Bible. 
So I said, that's it. I'm going to love the Bible. I'm going to memorize the New Testament. And in a very short period of time, I had memorized the entire New Testament, except the book of Acts, which I figured was a history book and it didn't matter, and the book of Revelation, which I figured nobody understood, so who cares? But besides that, I had memorized the entire New Testament. I was like the walking Bible. You could just quote the verse. I could quote it by memory. I was the walking Bible. But the power I expected never showed up. So I said again, if I was God, who would I give my power to? I finally concluded, if I was God, I would give my power to somebody who really prayed and fasted. If they fast, they must really be serious. So I'm going to fast until I so impress God that God will give his mighty power to me. And I began fasting. When I was 18 years old, 19 and 20, back in those years, I fasted 40 days, three times a year, with smaller 10-day fasts in between the 40-day fast. People were concerned about me because I was not eating, but I was so hungry for the power of God. And the only thing I drank was water and coffee. And I want to tell you, when you don't eat for 40 days and you drink a lot of coffee, you can get a lot of wild revelations. Man, I was getting a lot of wild revelations. But the power never came. The power never came. Here I was, the walking, emaciated Bible with no power. And I said, Lord, where is the power? And that's when I first came to Romans chapter 8, verse 26, and I understood that I had misread this verse. I thought that somehow by my piety, somehow by my devotion, I was going to impress God so much that somehow with my personal sanctity, I was going to impress him so much that I would twist his arm and he would be obligated to give me his power. And I turned a wonderful work of grace into a work. And God doesn't do anything in response to works. And that's when I understand this verse. It does not say God likewise helps those that are perfect. It says the Spirit likewise helps our infirmities. That's when I understood my infirmities are not against me. My infirmities, if I'll understand them and acknowledge them, they are the very thing that qualify me. That's why I need help. I need help of the Spirit because I'm infirmed. And the good news is the Spirit helps us because of our infirmities. And then Paul in this verse describes what is our greatest infirmity. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmity, for we know not, the Greek literally says, we do not have the know-how. We know not what. I asked you to circle the word what. In Greek, it is the little word T. The little word T describes the most minute, minuscule detail It literally means forget the big stuff. We don't even know how to pray about the most minute, minuscule details in life. And in fact, the verse then underscores how serious this is because it says we know not what to pray for as we ought. The word ought is the Greek word day, which describes an obligation or a necessity, which means there is a specific, concrete way that must be prayed about every situation we face in life. And you could literally translate the verse like this. We do not know how to pray as every new circumstance necessitates. 
indicating there's no such thing as a magical formula prayer that works for everything. Every new problem is going to require a specific kind of praying. We do not have the know-how. We do not know what to pray for, as is required for everything we face. Well, who knows how to pray that well? In order to pray like that, to pray accurately, specifically, about every single thing you'll ever face in life, you have to know what is the will of God. You have to know what is in the future. You have to know what is the source of every problem. You can't even pray about other people, really, unless you know what is the condition of their hearts. And the only one who knows all of those answers is the Holy Spirit. And therefore, he is the only one really authorized to pray. He is the only real prayer expert. The Holy Spirit knows what is in the future. The Holy Spirit knows what is the plan of the Father. The Holy Spirit knows why you were born. The Holy Spirit knows what you should do, what you should not do. He knows what is in every person's heart. And therefore, the Holy Spirit is really the only prayer expert that there is. He's the only one. And now when you come to this verse, Paul says, because of our infirmed condition, because spiritually, we're all kind of a terminal case, because spiritually, we're crippled, spiritually, we get confused, spiritually, our problems just beat us and beat us and beat us repetitiously, spiritually, we're comatose, and then he describes what is comatose, for we know not, we don't know, we don't know what to say, we don't know what to do, we don't know how to pray as we have to, to get results. And because of this infirmed condition, Paul says, but, look at verse 26, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. This is a little confusing because I always thought intercession is what we did for others or what we did for God. But this verse says the Spirit is the one making intercession, and the Spirit makes intercession for us. The word intercession in Greek is a very, very long Greek word, and it carries several meanings. Number one, it means to fall into a ditch with someone else, which means the only way you're going to experience this supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit is if you are in a ditch. It only occurs for those that are in the bottom of a ditch. Well, if we're infirmed, then you understand we're in the ditch, and we're in the ditch all the time. If you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do, you don't know how to pray, you're in a ditch. That this word intercession means to fall into with someone else. Second, it means to share emotions or to share frustrations. Third, this word intercession, many places in the New Testament is translated as the word supplication, and as the word supplication, it is a word of rescue, which means I am personally going to get you out of this mess. I'm going to get you out of this situation. Well, when you put all of this together, we find that when we're in that place where we don't know what to say, we don't know what job to take, we don't know if this is who we're supposed to marry, we don't know what we're supposed to do, we don't know how to combat this illness. We don't know how to resolve our financial dilemma. We're just in such a place of infirmity. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to pray as we must. In that moment, if we'll simply say, 
Help me, Holy Spirit. We will no longer have to deal with this by ourselves because this word intercession means the Holy Spirit will say, here I come, and he will fall in with us and meet us in this place of infirmity. He will begin to share his emotions with us. He'll begin to impart fire to us. He'll begin to impart knowledge to us, everything that we need. And working with us and through us, the Holy Spirit then will begin to supplicate or he'll begin to set into place a rescue plan to pull us out of that difficult place and put us back on our feet again. And the Bible says the Spirit does it with groanings which cannot be uttered. The word groanings is the Greek word stenegmas. The word stenegmas means to aspirate, to vent. It is the very word we would use to describe the teapot on your stove. If you put the teapot on your stove and turn up the fire, what does the teapot do? The pressure begins to get hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter and more intense and more intense and more intense until finally the teapot begins to whistle. It begins to aspirate. It begins to vent or it begins to let off steam. That steam has power in it. Steam is power. It can move energy. It can move engines. And here's what happens. Usually if you're struggling... You're dealing with an issue. You've tried and tried and tried to resolve this issue, and you're so failing in your ability. You don't know what to say. You're so tired. You don't know what to pray. You've already tried to pray everything you know to pray. You're trying on your own to do it all. So finally you sit down and you say, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to do. And as a last resort, you say, Holy Spirit, is there anything you can do to help? And the Holy Spirit says, that's what I've been waiting for. And bam, he falls into that situation with us. Now we're not dealing with a problem by ourselves, but now we have a divine partner. By the time we've asked for his help, most of us are already a little sad. We might even be spiritually cold. And what we need is passion. We need fire. So the Holy Spirit begins to share his passion with us. He begins to turn up the fire under us. And if you'll notice, when you ask for the Spirit's help, sometimes you find yourself physically begin to move when you pray. You're down in the dumps, but you find yourself starting to stand up. You begin to move around. Something's happening. It's like Kent Clark is coming out of the phone booth and has become Superman. You might even be impressed with yourself, but the truth is the Holy Spirit Spirit has come alongside and he has turned up the fire under you. Somebody might say, well, now wait, 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 wait. I asked for the Holy Spirit to help me. Why didn't I feel that fire? Well, you know, how quickly you respond to the fire depends on how cold you are when you ask for help. If you put ice cold water on the stove, it's going to take it longer to respond. And unfortunately, many times we wait and wait and wait and wait and wait before we ask for help. Then we ask, and it takes a while for our spirits to begin to respond to that passion and that fire which the Holy Spirit wants to give to us. But eventually, 
the Holy Spirit working with us and in us begins to release divine power, divine power, like steam that can move engines. And when that power is released through us, suddenly we find our minds are filled with divine insight. We find ourselves praying in ways that previously we did not pray. We're praying specifically. We're praying accurately, not because we're so smart, but because the divine partner has joined us, and now his power is beginning to cooperate through us. And I'm going to give you a true story. I rarely tell this, but Pastor Dwayne likes me to tell stories. Many years ago, many, many years ago, I was called in the middle of the night to pray for a woman who was dying of cancer. It was about 12 o'clock at night, put on my clothes, got in the car, drove over to the house. She had just been released from the hospital and she had come home. And the doctors had not even completely sewn her up from her surgery because they knew they were going to have to open her up again because she was so filled with infection and filled with cancer. In fact, she was seeping from her wounds. And when I came into their house about midnight, the house was filled with other pastors that they had called. They were all sitting there. You know what they were all doing? They were all praying what they knew to pray. They were quoting Scripture with no results. They were all praying with no results. And when I walked into the room and heard how they were praying, I said to the Lord, why did I come here? I'm not going to do anything different than what they're doing. I'm going to quote the same Scriptures. I'm going to pray the same kind of prayers. Why am I here? And the Holy Spirit said to me, if you will obey me, tonight you'll see my power in this room and I will heal this woman. Well, that kind of excited me. And really, my pride kind of stood up because I thought, well, none of these other pastors are getting her healed, but through me tonight, this woman's going to be healed. And I said to the Lord, what do you want me to do? She was sitting in a recliner, and I heard the Holy Spirit clearly say to me, go over to her, lay across her lap with your upper chest, and begin to pray loud in tongues. I said, you have got to be kidding. Do you want me to lay across her? I'm not going to do that. I'm kind of a conservative person in my personal life, and that just sounded awful to me. Plus, she was seeping through her wound. I could just imagine that stuff getting on my clothes. And not only that, if I laid across her abdomen, my bottom was going to be sticking in the faces of all these other preachers. And I said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And the Holy Spirit kept saying to me, are you going to obey me? Are you going to obey me? Are you going to obey me? You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit is like the hound dog of heaven. He just stays right on your heels. Are you going to obey me? Are you going to obey me? And I tried to visit with every person in the room that night, trying to buy time, hoping that the voice of the Holy Spirit would just disappear or go away. But when I was finished visiting with everybody, the Holy Spirit would say, now, are you going to obey me? And I looked at that woman. I looked at all those pastors. And I said, I'd like every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. No one looking. 
And when I knew they had bowed their heads and they had closed their eyes, oh, I got on my knees and leaned over this woman's abdomen. And I began to pray in the spirit loudly, loudly, not because loud is powerful. I was trying to drown out what my brain was saying to me. My brain was saying, this is awful. This is humiliating. You're going to lose your reputation right here in this room. You're going to hurt this woman by laying on her. And all of a sudden, the woman let out a scream. And when she did, I jumped up. She said, oh, why did they do that to me? And she began to go through a list of rejections in her life. Why did my father do that? Why did my sister die? Why did my brother die? She began describing events that went all the way back to her childhood. And as she began to cry out, I looked at her and understood something was happening in this woman that my brain would have never been able to figure out. This woman did not have cancer. She had a spirit of rejection that had materialized in her body as cancer. And now that spirit of rejection materializing as cancer had become so strong in her body that her body was rejecting her. You say, wow, Rick, that sounds a little far-fetched. Well, it's not very far-fetched because that night when I left that place, that woman was healed. She did not have cancer. But here's the thing. The best that I could have done by myself was to quote verses, pray against the cancer, pray against the cancer, rebuke the cancer, take authority over the cancer. I could have released a lot of energy against the wrong thing. It was not cancer. It was a spirit of rejection. And the Holy Spirit saw that. He just needed somebody to partner with him so that power could be imparted. And for some reason... What I did is what somebody needed to do. I don't know why. You don't have to know the answer to every question. But that night, when I did not know what to do, the Holy Spirit literally fell in with me. He fell in with me and working with me. He released his divine power into that woman's body. And when I left that night, she was cancer-free. If I had counseled that woman for weeks, I would have never thought that she had a spirit of rejection. I would have never been smart enough to point that out. This is what is so fruitless, really, for us to pray about much without the Holy Spirit's help, even praying for someone that you know and love. For example, we have a relative. For years, when we prayed for that relative, we sounded like we were schizophrenics. Sometimes we prayed for her to be saved. Then we'd say, well, God, maybe she is saved. Maybe she's just backslidden. Lord, we don't know what is her state. Just do whatever you need to do in her life. You know why? Because we couldn't see what was in her heart. We did not know her real spiritual condition. So we were just taking a shot in the dark in the way that we prayed. But the Holy Spirit sees everything. He knows everything. He knows what happened, what will happen. He knows what is the future, what is the past, what you need to do, what you need to avoid, what you need to invest, what you should stay away from, when you should go on vacation, when you should not. The Holy Spirit sees it all. He's just looking for someone who will say, help, will you please fall in with me? And he will fall in.
I'll end with one more story to show you how the Holy Spirit knows everything that I'm going to conclude. We were living in Moscow, of course. We've lived in the Soviet Union for 30 years. Work very hard. And Denise and I decided we were going to do something special for our sons. We decided that we were going to take a very exotic vacation. Of course, when you live in Moscow, you're very close to everything. So what seems exotic to you is only a few hours from us. So we decided we were going to pack up our kids, and we were going to go to Sri Lanka for the holidays. It was the end of the year. Oh, we were excited. We had paid for the rooms, made all the reservations. Even Denise's sister was going to come from America to Moscow and join us. And as a family in with Denise's sister, we were going to Sri Lanka. We were going to have the most marvelous time. We had already chosen the beach on the southeast corner, right at the very base of Sri Lanka. Oh, we had looked at the pictures, examined the beaches. We were thrilled. And several weeks before we went, I was in a time of prayer. And suddenly, I felt a strong presence of the Spirit of God, like I've been describing to you. It's like the Holy Spirit fell in with me. And I began to pray in the Spirit. As I began to pray in the Spirit, I felt such a force released through me. And suddenly, I felt in my mind, I felt in my mind an understanding that we were not to take our family to Sri Lanka. Well, I didn't want to tell my family because they were so excited about going. We'd already purchased tickets for Denise's sister. We were nearly packed, ready to go. And now the Holy Spirit's saying to me, do not, I forbid you, I forbid you, I forbid you, do not go to Sri Lanka. So I called the family together. I said, guys, I don't know why. I feel such a restriction in my heart. It's like a constriction inside me. Every time I go near this word, Sri Lanka, do not go, do not go, do not go, and we cannot go. And my son said, Dad, we want you to obey whatever the Holy Ghost is saying to you. If he says don't go, we won't go. And of course, I wondered why. Then one day, we went to an event at church in Moscow, and when we came home, I turned on the news. It was the very week that we were to be in Sri Lanka. In fact, according to the plans, we would have arrived there two days earlier. We would have been lying on the beach in our hotel on the southeast corner of Sri Lanka, right on the sea. And when I turned on the news, I saw the news of the massive tsunami that had swept through that region of the world. That tsunami that had hit Indonesia, had hit the lower side of India, and that had wiped out the southeast corner of Sri Lanka. In the days that followed, I got online and found out that the hotel where we were supposed to be that very morning no longer existed. It was removed, and every single person who had been booked in that hotel had been lost at sea. We were scheduled to be there. But the Holy Spirit, who is our divine partner, he knows what I don't know. He sees what I can't see. He knows every event that is going to happen. He's just looking for somebody who will invite his partnership so he can fall in and make intercession and initiate a rescue plan to get you out of any situation that you are in. And the Holy Spirit literally made 
intercession for me and my family as he fell in with us and enabled us to think right, to see right, to pray right. I remember thinking, why? Why can't we go to Sri Lanka? It doesn't matter why. The Holy Spirit knew what I did not know. He is the only person really who could be qualified as a prayer expert. He knows it all. And this shows the absolute futility of we believers trying to do the business of Jesus without an active partnership with the Holy Spirit. Even if you know scriptures to quote, that doesn't mean the power is going to be manifested. Even if you know how to lay hands on the sick, you don't know why the sick are sick. It may be that they really are under attack. It may be that they have unforgiveness. It may be that they have a spirit of unforgiveness. You don't know what's working behind the scenes. And if you're applying the right verses to the wrong thing, it may not work. But the Holy Spirit knows the root. He sees what you cannot see. And he's waiting for you and for me to invite him to fall in with us, to help us in our infirmed condition. And he will work through us and release his power. And with us, Those things are removed. That is what the Bible calls help. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26. And that is what the Holy Spirit has available for me, for you, and for anybody who will throw up their arms and who will say, Hey, Lord, without your help, I'm pretty infirmed. So I'm inviting you to fall in with me and help me. If you find that you don't know what to do in your marriage, you don't know what to say to your spouse, you don't know what to do with your money, you just don't know in some area of your life, he is the one that has all the answers. He knows exactly what to say, exactly what to do. And therefore, our need is to throw open the door and say, hey, come, fall in with us. And don't wait until you're stone cold to ask for help. Ask quicker so he can impart his fire faster and begin to release that divine energy in you. That's what I had on my heart for you this morning. And I pray this has been a blessing to you. Let me pray for you. Put your hand on your heart. Pastor Duane, if you would come. Father, we thank you for the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I think of my own life. I think of your church. How many things we just routinely do on our own and that we wonder why we're fruitless. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to fall in with us. We confess that we need your help. And we ask you to help us. In Jesus' precious name. Thank you for watching and being a part of our online family. Subscribe to our channel for access to all of our videos and live services. You can also be notified when a new service becomes available if you ring the notification bell. We cannot do this without you. You can support this ministry and help us reach more people with the word by giving at reslife.org give. Thanks again for watching. Be blessed.